Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good to see you. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us, uh, join me in God's Word in the book of Amos, the Old Testament prophet Amos, as we move, uh, con- as we continue through our series, Turn. Uh, while you're turning, uh, just a couple of things. First off, just to our ladies, next week on both Sunday morning and Sunday night, we're going to have the honor and the privilege of hosting Jennifer Greenberg. I've known Jennifer's work for a long time, formerly Jennifer Grassman. If you want to look her up on Apple Podcasts, she is our, our Apple iTunes. She is a recording artist. She's a published author. Uh, she's going to be with us in the morning service. She and I will have a conversation around the topic of abuse. She has a domestic violence a history of of being a survivor, and she's going to share that story. She's also going to share with us in song. She has a powerful, powerful message for us. And then next Sunday night, 5 o'clock, dinner, child care, all provided. It's our quarterly kind of big meeting for the Covenant women. So ladies, don't miss that. Uh, Please, please get signed up for it so that we can make sure that we have uh, appropriate food and and child care workers and all the things that we need. But we look forward to seeing you there next Sunday night starting around five o'clock. The other thing I want to say is just how thankful I am and how proud I am of this church for the way you showed up and delivered on loving your neighbor in this room last Sunday night. God bless you for that. It was a fantastic evening. You are learning how to love the world that God loves. And I was so encouraged by that. So here's what I want you to do, all right? I don't know if you noticed or not, but we made a couple of newspapers, all right? There's no such thing as bad press, they say. I beg to differ. Uh, and, and here's the reason. The press didn't do anything. I, 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 I'm thankful to both those publications for doing what they did. Nobody misrepresented us. Everything was great. But here's the thing. I, I think you could probably tell. This is risky ground, especially for uh, an evangelical church. And I'm not talking about our Jewish friends. I'm not talking about our Muslim friends. I'm, not about, I'm talking about other Christians who were not in the room, who don't have a freaking clue what actually happened who will be tempted by their conservative nature to make crap up. That's otherwise known as gossip. Now, here's the two things I'm going to tell you. Number one, let it roll like water off a duck's back. Because what happened on Sunday night, man, it was God. And I don't normally even bring this up, but here's the deal. All of you were a part of that. Like, that wasn't just me. It just wasn't just me. And those of you who are in that room, you know what happened. You experience that. Don't let the Pharisees pour cold water on your heart. When they ask about what happened, when they presume the worst about what happened, when they, there's just an element in conservative evangelicalism that loves to criticize what they don't understand, and that never happens any better than when they're sitting in a dead gum peanut gallery and we're not even in the room. So you listen to your pastor, you take heart on what happened, you keep loving the world that Jesus died to save. And I know some of our friends at Otis and Adams, if you're not watching right now, listening, you will a little bit later. My, my prayer, and I, and I think it'd be the prayer of everybody in this room, is that you walked out of here knowing 
that anytime you come to West Virginia, you've got a home. We love you. And God bless you. God bless you for everything you've done. And actually, that translates really well into what we're going to talk about today in the book of Amos. We've been in this series dealing with the latter part of the Old Testament where God raised up 12 men and gave them the assignment of inviting his people to turn back to him. And the circumstances are different with each prophet, but, but with each subsequent call to return, we see a different idol holding us back. And then we see this call from a loving God beckoning us out of that bondage that sometimes we don't even realize we've, we've done to ourselves and into genuine freedom of the worship of the true God. And the key to this is this Bible word called repentance. It's time to turn. We're going to hear that message. It's time to turn 12 different ways. And this is way number three This, uh, as we look at Amos this morning. Now, Amos was a, a contemporary of Hosea, the first prophet we looked at a couple of weeks ago. But you'll notice, even though they preach in almost the same place and roughly the same amount of time, their, their dispositions are a little bit different, sometimes radically so. Hosea is a lot more emotional in his presentation. God is presented as a lot more tender Amos is, well, he's a little grumpy. We're going to discover some of the reasons for that as we get into this text together. I, I'll be honest with you as a native southerner, I think part of it was that Hosea is preaching to the northern kingdom and he's from the north, so he didn't have to go anywhere. Amos is preaching to the north as well, but he's from the south, so he had to move to cold weather. I think that might have made him a little bit grumpy. Just my, you know, just a thought there might have happened. But we're going to discover other reasons as well that, that Amos really comes strong, that he, he utters some really, really strong language because his call to repent is a call to turn from injustice and toward compassion. In other words, Amos wants you and me to embrace justice. So what do we mean by that? It's a complex word especially when, we, when it's uttered in our own day because of the many different understandings that people have of it. Uh, when I say justice, in fact, some of you probably, like immediately, you thought of a law enforcement officer or you thought of the inside of a courtroom. Well, that's not wrong. Those certainly are pictures of, of justice, or at least they should be. Others of you, your mind didn't go there. It went almost reflexively to some kind of social inequity. The inability of some people to get access to basic needs like food and medicine and other sorts of things. And, and the great news about the Hebrew scriptures is the word for justice, the word mishpat, actually embraces all of those meanings together. Hebrew is such more of a fluid language, a holistic language than our English language is. And, and the term simply means this. When the Bible uses the term justice, its base definition is simply to give someone else what they are due. And that can be understood in a negative sense. It can be understood in a, in a positive sense. Negatively, it means if they do things that are harmful to themselves or harmful to others, if they break the law, if they murder, if they steal, then justice requires punishing that individual. Romans 13 tells us that God has established justice in the world through human governments. Doesn't mean human governments get everything right. Doesn't mean that we're always supposed to bow blindly to whatever government says. But it does say that if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you are not defaulting to quote-unquote anti-government. Government's a good gift of God. It's there to punish those who do evil. And conversely, if we live in a society that refuses to punish evil, you're going to end up living in a society that's fundamentally unjust. So negatively, justice means we punish those who do evil. Positively, though, that focuses on the image of God and all of humanity. And in most cases where this word appears in the Old Testament, the context means this is the intended meaning. 
And that's true here in Amos. Justice isn't merely about punishing evildoers. The heart of justice, the heart of mishpat, is providing what is due to vulnerable people. And this is happening in the 8th century B.C. This is the audience that Amos is writing to. And he says to them, basically, you're very religious people. You're, you're ornate. The temple is the temple, and it's beautiful, and your liturgy is beautiful, and your sacrifices is beautiful, and ugly at the same time. Your religion actually is bad at heart because it has rotten fruit, and the chief evidence of that is the condition of the most vulnerable in your city. It would be like God speaking today to a church and saying, you've built a hundreds of millions of dollars of a building, and everybody that comes is dressed, and they've got diamond-crusted this and that, and everybody's fine, and everybody's good, and you're the it church in town, but the people right down the street are suffering, and you are doing nothing about it. And that's rotten fruit. Rotten fruit, because you don't see, let alone help, the vulnerable. Your religion is bad because justice does not exist among you. So here's what I want to give you today. Out of Amos chapter 5, it's a five-fold call to repent, to turn from injustice to compassion. Everybody's at different places in their journey here. I get that. Some of you are at different places than others. Some of you, maybe there's some injustice in the heart. You don't even realize it's there. God's, God's word, like a scalpel, is going to divide to the point of bone and marrow this morning and pull some things out of you that are going to jack you up, and I don't apologize for it. But I do love you. And God loves you, and God does that stuff because he wants to see you come out of that. Because if you have a heart that is unjust, you're going to eventually suffer injustice, and you're going to be in bondage to the very kind of mentality that Amos describes here. Five steps to return our hearts into alignment with God's view of justice. It starts with this one. We need to understand what injustice is. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate. And they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, that's kind of strong. We hear people all the time talk about trampling on the poor. Here's the difference. This is not merely an emotional argument. Amos goes on to describe the precise ways in which the society of his day was trampling on the poor. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And then he goes on to say the following in verse 12, For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside a needy in the gate. There's that word gate again. Now, when Amos talks about the gate, he's talking about this shady concourse area that was in the public view around Jerusalem. And it's where all the old men would gather and observe all the goings-on of the day and comment on all the things that are going on. So you ever been to the barbershop? You ever been to your local bar? You ever seen those old guys, always the same group of guys, are always over in the corner? Here in, in Shepherdstown, it's McDonald's on a Tuesday morning. I've been there, right? And it's, it's a bunch of dudes. They're, they're older than me. They're a lot of fun to hang out with. They also got opinions, all right? You've seen that group of guys, all right? In, in about, some, sometimes it could be any number of places, but it's that sort of common area. And have you ever noticed how all the world's problems are so incredibly simple and have simple solutions? in those kinds of environments? Well, that's because there's a court of public opinion in that room where they're all kind of agreeing with one another. And it ruled the popular sentiment of the day. And in that place, you'll notice, kind of like in Amos's day, I don't want nobody messing with public opinion. Don't put a fly in my ointment. Don't do that. 
okay? But there always is somebody, isn't there? There's always a black sheep. A bunch of guys driving Fords could pull up to a parking lot. There'll be some dude in a Chevy. Bunch of people show up at the coffee shop to do, I don't know, book club or whatever you're going to do there. And everybody brings their, C, their PC. And then here comes Mac Guy with his superiority complex. Everybody's got a, a black sheep somewhere. Bunch of old guys at the barbershop talking conservative politics. There's always one bleeding heart right in the middle of them, right? Stirring the pot just a little bit. And, and that's basically what Amos is talking about. He's saying when you are in that place where there is a court of public opinion, occasionally you're going to hear a minority opinion you might ought to listen to. Maybe just a little bit. And, and this is how you view those who counter public opinion at the gate. You hate them. But in this case, they're telling you the truth. And here's the truth. You trample the poor. That's quite a charge. Like I said, he goes on. He goes, here's the different ways that you do it. First off, you accept taxes of grain. In other words, that's talking to the revenue structure, your income tax structure, your property tax. However it is that you collect revenue to pay your public officials and, and pave your roads and do all of those kinds, it's set up in a way that's actually oppressive and will, it will ensure that the poor remain poor because you're taking more than they can afford for you to take without them continuing to slip deeper and deeper into poverty. You exact taxes of grain. Secondly, you afflict the righteous. Affliction can be translated oppress here. And it means you're causing distress in the life of somebody who has done nothing to deserve it. So on one hand, as I said earlier, if there's a system that doesn't punish evildoers, it's unjust. But conversely, if there's a system that inherently makes life difficult for people who've done nothing wrong, that too is unjust. And instead of doing something about it, Amos goes on. He says, you take a bribe. Rather than calling that what it is and calling it out, you actually actively benefit from it. And in doing so, you turn aside the needy. You deny them what they need. That's another way of saying you deny them what they as image bearers of God are due. And there has never been a society ever built by fallen men and women in the history of the world that hasn't contained some measure of this. Because every human society is built by sinners. Okay? And, and so there's no, right, there's, there's no, for those of you who are maybe a little bit on the bleeding heart side, you're like, well, that's right, that's right. If we could just burn our current system down and build this whole new one, we'd have a utopia. That's funny. Right? All, the, all these movements toward, toward, well, we need equity and we need this and we need that. Hey, you're not going to get any argument from Amos until you start thinking you can actually build just such a system without the return of Jesus. I'm not arguing for or against anything, although granted, it, just use some common sense, folks. You know, if we would just do this, everything would be great. Well, that's just more barbership, barbershop talk. That's all that is. That's just more talk at the local bar. That, that's oversimplifying an issue. Complexity is inherent in any sinful system. But, but if, you, if you like what I've said in the last three minutes, because you, you like it when the preacher takes a jab at one of those bleeding hearts, you need to listen too. Just because those kinds of injustices have always and will always exist does not mean God's people are not called by him to play the role of the prophet and call it out when it happens and to advocate on behalf of the vulnerable. Advocate 
on behalf of the vulnerable. Our, our history bears witness to just multiple examples of those actions. I'll, I'll just give you one. Back in the 1920s and 30s, this may explain some, some history for some of you. Uh, a lot of the working poor in this country, they were beginning to gather together. They were beginning to get united, and they were starting to, to make some progress. And, you know, when we talk about equity today, you, we were actually starting to see some of that. And particularly that was happening in my native south. North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, we started to see the, the redemption and the lift that ha often happens when, when the gospel is applied. But, but there were some who were part of that aristocratic structure, that old structure, that were still benefiting from that structure, and that's not something they wanted to see happen because it might hurt them. It might take something away from them. And so yeah, for those of you who may wonder, in the South, that's where Jim Crow laws came from. Did you know that? So you thought Jim Crow laws was, were about race, didn't you? Well, it was about race on the surface, but underneath the surface was this. We've got to get the poor divided from each other. The easiest way to do that in the South, given their sinful past, is to segregate white and black from each other and then turn them on each other and make each of them think that the other is the problem. Every protest around race that you have seen in the last three years can be traced directly back to that nonsense. That's what the system will do to people. It'll turn us against each other. That's what'll happen. And we see this in other areas, like the false hope that the working poor are given. Every single time they see an ad for the lottery. Oh, now I'm meddling, aren't I? Every time a payday lender sets up in a storefront like a fox looking for hens, taking advantage of people. Get your paycheck early. You only got to pay it back times three. Student loan organizations that charge interest rates to 18, 19, 20-year-olds that are higher than credit card rates. Amos says here to God's people, when you see these things, there's simply no option for a follower of Jesus to shrug his shoulders and go, well, that's not really my problem. A faith that commends love of neighbor as second only to love for God doesn't react with a shrug of the shoulders toward injustice. Did you know there's more than 117 individual verses in Scripture that give us clear instruction on justice for the poor? You, you want to know why we go to places like Apple Tree? You want to know why we go to some other places? Listen, it, it's not because, well, my goodness, those poor people. We have, no, they are created in the image and likeness of God. They are due a level of dominion that you and I have. And poverty, brothers and sisters, that's what it is. It's a lack of ability for someone to have dominion. The very thing that God told Adam, the very first commandment, have dominion, even before he was created, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. That's what it means. This isn't something we can ignore. So you got to understand injustice, number one. Number two, you got to repent of injustice, okay? Guys, this ain't Republican or Democrat. This ain't conservative, liberal. This ain't woke, non-woke, whatever the crap those words mean. This is a simple matter of whether we will be obedient or disobedient when it comes to the most vulnerable. I think it's been well said. You can tell the character of a nation by looking at their most vulnerable populations and just simply asking, how are they doing? I think that's more important when we talk about the church. You can tell how healthy a church is. You can tell how genuine the worship of the body of Christ is 
when you just look at the most vulnerable, both within and without, and you ask yourself a question, how are we doing? How are those people doing? Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So this is a pretty base definition of what repentance looks like applied to the issue of justice. He says you need to do two things. Number one, a heart of, for justice, which matches God's heart for justice, hates evil and loves good. That's pretty simple, right? You and I are commanded to hate injustice because God, in whose image the vulnerable are created, hates injustice. God hates hunger. He hates poverty. He hates systems which perpetuate such things. And love the good. Embrace the things that lead to justice. And in a fallen world, we're not always going to see how to do this clearly. Okay, We're not always going to agree with one another about what that looks like. It's okay for followers of Jesus to have different opinions about things like labor laws and things like minimum wage laws. It's fine. Whatever strong opinion you got, keep it. I'm not trying to get you to change any of that. What, what I am doing is this. Don't let what you think be dictated to you by a dang political party platform. Let the heart of God drive you. Let the heart of God do that. Okay? So we're not always going to see clearly. We're not always going to agree with one another. We will sometimes, but our hearts should be one on this. Hate evil, love good. And it's only with that heart that you can do the next thing. Establish justice in the gate. Remember the gate above the, the barbershop, the local bar? You know what he's saying? Once you've developed the heart of God, go into those places and change the conversation. That, that's, that's the message here. That's the challenge here. Go into those places and change the conversation. One of the great things I love about our partnership with One America West Virginia is it's allowed us to do that around the issue of addiction. In the 1960s, 1970s, it was probably very well intended, but there was an addict narrative that got pushed on our culture. Again, I think maybe there were a lot of people afraid for their children, like any normal parent would be. And so they said, you know what? Let's paint this really dark picture of the addict as the most undesirable person ever so that our kids won't ever want to grow up and be like that. But that was also a time when we didn't understand everything, did we, about the nature of addiction. More particularly, the brain chemistry that's affected when it comes to something like opioids. We didn't, in those years, need to take the moral element out of it. It's still a bad decision to take illicit, illicit drugs. But what we did is we added the full picture, or we're trying to do that at least, so that we don't just see some junkie. We see an image bearer of God who's trapped, certainly through bad decisions, but also trapped by a larger environment and a reality that makes it far easier to be addicted than it should be. And so to repent, Amos says, look to the vulnerable, look to the poor, look to the addict, look at those people that are undesirable, whoever that might be, and look at them with a new set of eyes that sees them differently, that doesn't dismiss their humanity, that doesn't dismiss the complexity of the issues that they contend with. Understand what injustice is. Repent of injustice. And in doing so, number three, we'll avoid the consequences of injustice. This takes us to verse 13. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. 
Fast forward to verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing, and those who are skilled in lamentation, and in all vineyards there shall be wailing. For I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. This is a foreboding warning. There are times when God says, I'm coming, that we go, yeah, Lord, come. This ain't one of them times. This is one of those texts that the context demands. When he says, I'm coming, we're like, oh, Lord, no. No. Because punishment is about to be exacted for the lack of a heart that is in sync with the heart of God. And we see this throughout the Bible, most, most clearly in the prophets. Look at Jeremiah 29, 7. He says, to the exiles, right? They've been sent as exiles, slaves into Babylon, and this is what he tells them. Seek your liberty. Nope. Seek your rights. Nope. Seek your home. Nope. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray for the Lord on its behalf. In its welfare, you will find yours. Did you know everywhere, not just here in Jeremiah, everywhere God's people have ever been allowed to exist, God has intentionally tied the welfare of his people to the welfare of the people around them because he loves those people too. That's his desire. And so he says, I'm going to link your fortunes up. If they suffer, you suffer. That should actually motivate you to take an interest in the vulnerable. The corollary to this is sobering. When you don't care about the people around you, when you do nothing about the suffering around you, eventually you will be made to suffer with them. Anybody remember the last election? I, dinner tables divided, churches divided, families divided. You know you don't have to live that way, right? Yeah, I'm telling you that because in about a year, they're going to be at it again, okay? You're like, who, the Republicans or the Democrats? Yes. <laughs> All right? They are going to be at it again. And they're going to try to lure you off a team that is united under the blood of Jesus and onto their team, which is save our temporary kingdom or whatever the heck that looks like. I'm not telling you can't have opinions. I'm telling you that it's coming. And when you join the world in that toxic polarization, you know what? You get more of it. Is this making sense? You get where I'm going? You putting up, you're picking up what I'm putting down. You participate in that crap, you're going to get more crap. That's what Amos is telling us here. I'm not talking about voting. I'm not talking about having opinions. I'm talking about being ugly. I'm talking about treating people who disagree with you like they're the enemy. There are people in this room that voted for the current president, and you are welcome here. There are people in this room who voted for the former president, and you are welcome here. And if there's anybody that don't like that, there's a door. Because our unity comes from a bloody cross and an empty tomb, not a temporary Caesar. So remember this about a year from now. Because they're going to juice you up. All right? You're going to be watching television like you can't help yourself. 
And then you're going to wake up one morning. I don't understand. Why does my breakfast cereal taste, taste like urine? Because you peed in the cereal bowl. Stop peeing in the cereal bowl. Don't do that. Don't act like the world. And that's what Amos is saying. When it comes to the vulnerable, when you join the world in ambivalence, you get more injustice. And then you suffer. And then you cry out to the Lord for help. And he says, I love you. Take your medicine. You made your bed, now sleep in it. Here's what we got to do. This is number four. Share the Lord's heart for justice. Verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Whoa, wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to look forward to the day of the Lord. This should shock us a little bit. What would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. If a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and learned, leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him, in other words, this day of the Lord's inescapable, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Now, we've seen this word before. We saw it in Joel last week. The day of the Lord. It's used by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, that we'll look at later, Zechariah, Malachi. Israel used this phrase to refer to the times that the Lord would intervene on behalf of his people. And then the New Testament writers took it and appropriated it to describe both the first and the second comings of Jesus, which means there's a connection here, okay? There's a connection. And they were seeing the day of the Lord to their advantage, and Amos was saying, you need to check your behavior and think about the coming of the Lord in a very different way. When he says, I'm coming to you, he doesn't mean that in a good, warm and fuzzy, unicorns and rainbows kind of way. He means you've been wicked. He means you have trampled the rights of your fellow image bearers. He means you have not looked out for the most vulnerable among you, and so maybe you ought to a little bit, be a little bit concerned we have folks like this today. They, they, I call them prophecy addicts, right? They think of the end of the age with a hope that maybe they shouldn't have. Scour the internet for the latest on all the prophecy news. A bunch of guys that got their seminary degrees out of some bubblegum machine somewhere. Sit in a classroom with charts and timelines and potential candidates for the Antichrist. And you ever, here's something I want you to notice about a lot of that kind of conversation. There's never a personal call to repent in any of that. Have you noticed that? It's all about whether it's going to be the Russians or whether it's going to be this country or that country or who that person's going to be. It's outward focus. True eschatology has you look at your own heart first. Jesus is coming. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? Quit looking out here for all the If you know Jesus, all that other stuff will work itself out. And most of the crap you have learned in 20th century American evangelicalism ain't true anyway. I had students in my New Testament class ask me once, hey, Pastor, this was probably 20 years ago. Hey, what do you think of the Left Behind series? And I surprised them. I said, I loved it. You loved it? Yeah, it's, fan- it's phenomenal. It really is. I think, now you may disagree, and that's fine. I thought it was incredibly well written. It was a, written, it was a riveting story. And, and then with a little bit of a sly grin, I said, I think dispensational theology makes great fiction. And we can debate about all of that, but here's the thing. You sit in a place worried about this, worried about that, talking about the day of the Lord, when you will be avenged, waiting to be raptured out of here before God pours out his fiery wrath on all these pagans you don't like, 
That's exactly what the people of Israel were doing. It's how they were appropriating the teaching of the end of days. And Amos speaks here and says, I don't think you have a full understanding of how all this is going to go down. Or you wouldn't be begging for the coming of the Lord. You'd be afraid of it right now because of the way you are behaving. You, 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 you're ambivalent toward the poor. You perpetuate injustice on the vulnerable. You benefit without thought from a system that allows you to take bribes while you turn a blind eye to bona fide suffering happening right in front of you. Why on earth do you look forward to the day of the Lord? Don't you know he's going to avenge the evil that you have done? Why are you so anxious for your own judgment? These people who wanted perceived justice for themselves but cared nothing about real justice for the vulnerable and all of this for one simple reason. They did not share the Lord's heart for justice. And so Amos says, I, I don't want that for you. God really doesn't want that for you. I, grumpy old man from the south coming up north to warn you about this so that you will turn and so that God can do what Joel talked about last week, just tear open your heart and give you a new heart. And included in that new heart is going to be compassion for them. I think that's a question that Amos puts in front of us 25 centuries later, 26 centuries later. Sorry, my math's not good. I don't remember. 8th century B.C. forward, you, you determine all of that. But do we even see our eschatology, our view of the end of the age, in light of God's heart for the vulnerable? Do we look forward, not, not just, do I look forward not just to my own redemption out of this brokenness, out of this sinfulness, but, but to a day when the whole groaning creation, Paul tells me in Romans 8, is going to be fully redeemed and there won't be any more poverty which means there won't be any more school lunch programs. There won't be any more need for foster care. There won't be any more need for recovery programs because there will be no more suffering. And Amos says, if you want a piece of that, you got to have a heart that longs to bring glimpses of it right here and right now to people who are worse off than you. That's the heart of God. And that heart leads to genuine worship. This is the last step. Verse 21, I hate Buckle up. This one, it's been easy so far. This is, it's about to get rough. Just, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. He's methodically taking apart each of the elements of their liturgy and their worship and their sacrifice. And he's saying, everything you do for me in that temple is lacking because those expressions of worship do not come from hearts that are in sync with me. Now, this, believe it or not, is not the worst part. We don't even have time for me to read the worst part to you. Amos gets pretty crude. There are some women, apparently, who sit, who want to be pampered all the time, who, you know, they're, they're, they're very wealthy, and they're, and they're taking advantage of this system, and it's always they're, they're begging their husbands to bring them another drink, and they need more food, and they don't care who they hurt, and if slave labor made their clothes, so what? All that kind of stuff when we get to... It, that, that too is here in Amos, and, and here's, here's his introduction when he's addressing those women. Hear the word of the Lord, you cows of Bashan. Now, I've been on five continents, and I get 
that there is a lot of cultural diversity in the world, linguistic diversity in the world. I get that there are some things offensive in one culture that are not offensive at all in another culture. But after being on five continents, I have never been anywhere where a woman felt complimented if you called her a cow. Never. Okay? So I'm just assuming that that's a bad thing. I could talk more, but I won't. This, read this prophecy when you get home. There's several places you're like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, that was rough. Why does he do that? Is he just trying to be a shock jock? Like, is that all he's wanting to do? Well, let's look at verse 24. Here's what he says. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I want justice. That's my, it's not just the do of your neighbor. It's what you owe me as your God. And until you give it, I don't want to hear you singing to me. I don't want to hear you. It makes me nauseous. I hear you. I see your weekend Vegas show disguised as Christian worship, and I despise it. You want to know why? Remember Jesus' words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Brothers and sisters, we don't give our neighbors what is their due. We cannot give God what is his due. We can only give God his due in worship when we have done as he commands and have given our neighbors their due. And Amos says to Israel, before you sing another note, give another shekel, kill another sacrifice, I want justice. That's the call. You're like, I thought at the beginning of this series, you said that repentance doesn't look like this. It looks like this. This sounds kind of like this. It does, doesn't it? But again, think about this. It's a warning. It's a warning. Sometimes, if you've got a little toddler running around the house, it's been a few years since we've had one of those, you gently pull them back, and sometimes you yell at them, don't you? Yeah, if they're if they're about to run out in the middle of a busy street, you don't know, Johnny, honey, don't do that. You say, get back here. Why? Are you, I can't believe you'd try to scare me. Of course I would rather scare my kid than have him get hit by a car. This is apparently serious stuff because a God who loves us is being stern with us about it. We had best pay attention to our Heavenly Father. Recovery, the homeless, the kids we work with in this county, all the things we do that, that actually make me proud and honored to be a pastor, that make me feel like I don't have to make quite so much personal application to this congregation as a whole. I thank God for that. But that doesn't mean that all of us don't have individual hearts that need to be cleansed, irrigated, if you will. People who feign worship with no concern for justice are purveyors of the same religion that oppressed the poor and enabled the system that did so in Amos's day. People that feign worship with no concern for justice are part of the same religion that in the Middle Ages used the doctrine of hell to scare the poor into giving money they didn't have so that the church could build towering cathedrals. It's the same religion that effectively built St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome with slave labor. It's the same religion that in the 20th and 21st century so individualizes and personalizes my faith in Christ that it's devoid of any concern or any love for neighbor. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? 
Remember, sometimes it's easy to read really quickly and you miss something very significant. All that started with a question from the lawyer. What more do I do? Well, you know what to do. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. But then comes this question. Who is my neighbor? Y'all remember that question? All right. I want you to hear the benign neglect in that question. Well, well, I I, got to know where the the lines of demarcation are here. So who, who exactly are we talking about? That's the question of somebody who does not understand God's heart for justice. They're always qualifying. And so Jesus, in response, picks the absolute worst of society, a Samaritan. And not only explains God's heart for justice, but does it in a way that makes the most despised race in Israel the hero of the story. That's what he's doing. And so he makes him the hero. And here's what we learn. Everybody is created in God's image. Everybody is someone Jesus died to save. Everybody is your neighbor. And the best of faith turns from injustice toward them to compassion toward them. The same sort of compassion, unearned compassion even, that God showed you and showed me. Love God by loving them. Love them by loving justice. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are gracious to us even when you speak sternly to us. We thank you for your servant Amos who minced no words but who truly out of a heart of love calls us to have a heart that's in sync with yours because it's not just about doing the right thing. It's about seeing the world the way you see it. It's about bringing glimpses of a coming kingdom, a kingdom we fully confess we cannot bring apart from your splitting the eastern sky and bringing it yourself, but a kingdom nonetheless that we're called to reflect in every ministry, in every message, in every act of service. So, Father, fill our hearts with love of neighbor. We saw some of that last Sunday night. God, you are good to us because only you can create that kind of heart in people such as us in the midst of a world such as the one in which we're living. I believe you are active and moving and shaking your people. God, continue to do that for the sake of your own glory and for love of our neighbors. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.